الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه من ولاه. Like to welcome everyone to uh, another solo with the Safina Society podcast, and today uh, we're honored to have a guest that we haven't had on before. Two guests that we haven't had on before. All right, first is my wife Tamia Mansouri. Alhamdulillah, she's on the uh, on on her first on her doing her podcast debut. Uh, she's a historian. Uh, she's a lover of history, and she actually runs a high school now, one of the uh, more prominent high schools in the area. And she recently, maybe I don't know if I should break this news. She has she she has she got a contract. She made a contract with Princeton. I probably shouldn't break the news, but maybe I sort of just did. But I'll leave it at that. Okay. And secondly, we have from hailing from Minnesota, uh, we have Anta Tamara Gray. And you have to say Tamara. This is the right way to say it. Uh, make sure you say it right. So we'll begin with that. And uh, Tamara Gray just came from, now today I actually have to say something just as a historical point um, or a current of events point. This morning we had the tragedy in New Zealand and at least us here on the East Coast of America, this thing happened around midnight. The news broke around midnight. I didn't get it until five, six in the morning. And it was really, I mean, I'm sure the news should be wall-to-wall coverage. It should be. And if it isn't, it's probably, you know, um, done unjustly, but uh, it should be wall-to-wall because it's really uh, a high number relative to some of the other shootings that go on. So the first thing I want to start off is uh, with Answer Tamara. If you have any, what do you? What are your comments you have? What was your message to your, your folks? Uh, I know you run Rabata, and you have a lot of people look to your guidance, and you probably sent them a response. So, Well, first of all, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me here today. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm excited to ask you, Tammy, off the podcast what the contract is all about. Um, You know, I was awake last night and did not sleep all night because of the news. Just, I tried to, but I just couldn't. And I was following, between looking at Twitter and trying to go to sleep and then going back and just really the horrific aspect of it all and then also really feeling the hurting hearts of Muslims around the world I was different parts of the world were awake at different Mm -hmm. times and some of my students who are actually in Bosnia they said that he was listening to music that the Serbs would listen to before attacking and so it was a really terrible trigger for them as well and so all of this really had me thinking and my message was and is that our hearts are broken but we won't be broken Mm. our hearts can be broken and need to be i think we need to have we need to rest in the place of a broken heart Mm. what i mean by that is a place of grief and be able to pray for them with sincerity and really spend time on that Mm. But then at the same time, not to let any incident, no Mm. matter what it is, make us feel like this is the worst of times. Mm. We're not Voltaire. This isn't Candide. It's not the worst of times. And in fact, there have been worse times. And we can make these very, very good times. And I've had a lot of incredible people reach out to me today from all different communities Uh, in support and in love and in uh, just solidarity with goodness. And I think that's something to be pleased about, not only pleased, but also 
really look at our communities and say, Alhamdulillah, that we have done the work over the past few years to collaborate and reach out mm -hmm. so that we have our new friends and we're acting like the good neighbors as mm -hmm. Muslims that we should. So uh, tell us about, uh, now we want to hear about your community and also, uh, Tammy, for schools. Is there something that, I mean, you just had, you have a school, the, the school that my wife uh um, she runs the high school at a, a school that's literally on a hill on a highway on the most important corridor uh, in central Jersey. And it's a huge school on a hill. And it's almost in this environment, honestly, you're basically putting an advertisement and saying, come. But we're lucky. Alhamdulillah, nothing's happened. But it's literally on a, bi a big dome that you can't miss. So what kind of precautions did you have to take today? Well, um, Bismillah, first, Assalamu Alaikum. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to join. Uh, I've, I've always been an avid listener, but it's nice to actually be here to participate. L listener and uh, tolerates all the noise that we make uh, on no, no, weeknights. Happily. No, no, no. It's all for good cause. Alhamdulillah. Um, so, I mean, the main thing was to ensure the safety of the students. This was the priority. The, the intention I woke up with in the morning, the naya of the morning, was making sure that we keep them as safe as possible, given that, of course, we act out of the abundance of caution, not because we received any kind of threat or mm -hmm. anything of that kind, but um, that's how, what we're instructed to do in our, in our guidance, you know, to do that, to be uh, not uh, taking chances that are unnecessary. And... Um, in the end, we decided as administrators that uh, the best uh, thing to do after consulting with uh, local law enforcement, which they were extremely supportive, they provided us with um, a visible police presence uh, throughout the day, and especially during around the time of Juma, um, we were advised to really stay as, as close as we could to each other mm -hmm. and not to have a lot of walking outside. And, you know, mashallah, we have over 500 students in the school. And so to have them walking to the masjid or doing everything, we we were we decided against it. It wasn't so, a good idea. So how many students are going to be walking on an average day to the masjid? On Friday, everybody goes to Jummah. So yeah. there's a 12 o'clock Jummah and there's a 1 o'clock Jummah too. And so um, we have an SRO. We have a school resource officer. but And with even with the added uh, police presence, we still felt that it was better. Even consulting with them, they felt it was better for us to pray Jummah in the school, which mm. is what we decided mm. to do because we have um, a, very, a very good security system in the school. Uh, and that would be it would be harder for anybody to do anything if that's what you know happened. so recently there was something about a law where the state will actually fund private schools like what did they fund 75 percent so we received alhamdulillah uh, the, the bill was signed into law and we receive additional security funding now so this allowed us the ability to get a school resource officer so he is a police officer he uh, is armed he uh, obviously fully trained many many years of experience he's a sergeant so he's been on mm. the force for over 20 years and so we're, we feel very confident in his abilities he's he's also Mashallah, really connected well with us. Um, it's always it's always interesting when someone steps into the world of Muslims and education. So in the beginning, I, I felt his, I felt his, uh, <laughs> you know, he was definitely trying so hard. You know, he really was trying to understand us and to try to connect with us, each of us. And um, now I, I feel like he's really become part of the family, which is a really good Mashallah. thing. So the school, I mean, it's uh, you got the master, you have the school. Mm -hmm one man is he taking laps all day is he there is, cameras yeah. or what how does he, it work he uses he has a desk he uses the obviously the camera system and obviously i can't speak too much about this because yeah. it wouldn't be uh advisable um but he uh, has uh, significant resources at his disposal um to to protect the school at all times and i have to say he's extremely diligent you know he knows he knows a lot he mm. knows a lot yeah. now uh back to answer tamra the your community in minnesota i remember maybe five years back um 
you were teaching on uh, techno- on te- uh, online. And I, for some reason, had this sort of, was sort of raised, Islamically raised on an anti-technology diet. Mm-hmm. But over time, I, we actually switched completely. And I think that mo- the way Muslims use technology is more of a fusion than almost any other community because we use technology and the people that we meet online, we oftentimes meet in person because we have a space, which is, you know, you have your third space, your work, your home, and your masjid or whatever the third space is. Like for some people, it's a bar, right? But when you meet someone online, you're not going to invite them in your home, but you can meet in a masjid because it's a public space where it's, you know, it's, there's enough of a distance, right? So that's my experience. So I have a lot of fusion between meeting people online and then them coming to the masjid. So would you say, is that what Rabat is like? What's the actual on the ground community in Minnesota? Where's the meeting space? Well, the simple answer to that is our meeting space is daybreak. We have a bookshop, third space, uh, on the University of Minnesota campus. But I, I would like to speak to this idea of how Muslims feel about uh, the online world mm-hmm. because there's a lot of research out there. Actually, the research has been there since the 90s, but I don't think we're reading it, about online religion or religion online. And it's called now digital religion. Mm. And the idea is that everyone is in digital religion. Mm -hmm. Even if you tell yourself, I am not going to be part of any platform, I'm going to be, you know, free from all of this online stuff, still your congregation or your students or whatever term you want to use, they are online. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you are online. Mm -hmm. And so the idea behind digital religion is what is happening? How is digital religion changing religious culture? Mm -hmm. And I think that as Muslims, I believe that we need to stand at the intentionality of that, not just let it happen to us, but use digital religion to intentionally create positive cultures as opposed to sort of allowing digital religion to do with us as it may. And what you said about like I was quote unquote raised certainly with this idea of the evil of the Internet, Mm -hmm. you know, that and all these kinds of things. But I really, I, and I'm also, it's not my generation. I mean, that's quite, I'm, mm-hmm. as age-wise, it's not my, I didn't grow up with it in any sense of the word. But I really think that that's where we're building community. And I really think that as Muslims, it's time for us to get educated mm-hmm. about how to manage social media platforms, how to manage websites, podcasts, uh, videos, all of the different things in ways that are going to be building positive culture in our different communities. And so when I think about what's my community, I certainly think about Minnesota, the folks that come to Daybreak, the mosques in Minnesota that I've been very welcome to, and even the ones I haven't been welcome to, I still consider them part of my community in Minnesota and the, the people of other faiths in Minnesota. But really, I think that when we go online, Aisha Prime actually, I interviewed her recently, and she said something so interesting. She said, when we are online, we are going into people's homes. Mm-hmm. And we're not necessarily, like you just said, we're not necessarily inviting them into our homes, but we are going into theirs. So what does that mean about suhba? Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of stuff, we have to think carefully about and be intentional about that suhbah. It's a blessing in a way. Mm-hmm. So I can give suhbah 
to so many people in so many different ways. But I don't want to do that accidentally. Mm. And I think in any space of leadership, we want to think carefully about that and use it in ways that are really positive and uplifting. And I felt that some while back I was always resistant. And uh, Tammy knows all my, my wars against the Internet that would fail. And I would go on other uh, I would go on these highs and lows. And I think uh, the best thing was that when I actually came to the realization that uh, the online world is not going anywhere, this uh, fairy tale that uh, I mean, Netflix has these Amazon has these shows where everything collapses. This is like the new fairy tale, just as in the past, in the 50s, they had the Jetsons. Like what happens when technology really arrives? Well, we have this fairy tale that what happens when it all goes back and we're gonna have to chop wood. That's like the 0.001% likelihood. And the more likelihood is that the sunnah of Allah is when things spread at this rate and when money's transacted on it and and when literally the new generation's coming up and they don't know what a non-digital life is like. So the only way to do it is to take it head on and to realize it's not going anywhere, but now we need to manage it and be healthy about it and not feel guilty when you're on it. So the biggest thing is that these things fuel a lot of argumentation and they could actually produce extremes and give space to weirdos. And a person has to have, let's say we're talking to Muslims, he has to have a physical location where he actually meets real human beings and he balance, he counterbalances this. So this is almost like, you know, it's like sweets. It's like sugar. You're not going to stop eating chocolate, but you can take a walk to burn off the fat, right? So it's gonna you're going to have to balance it off. Well, if I can... I think that we also have to think about society in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, if you talk about sociology and think about how society society has been defined by different sociologists, it's been defined in ways outside of the internet. And so we have a tendency to think about the online world as something that's like you just said, chocolate, mm-hmm. or something that's kind of to the side. But I think we need to start thinking about it differently. As in, just like the town square was a place we would leave our home to meet other people. And sometimes at the town square, we'd meet a thief. Mm-hmm. And sometimes at the town square, we'd meet the town drunk. Mm-hmm. And sometimes at the town square, we would meet this wonderful elderly woman who changed our life. At the same, in the same way, the online world is part and parcel of our life. It's not a side dish. You know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 inter- it's braided into our very existence. And... Once we begin to see it like that, I think we'll make better plans Mm. and we'll learn how to interact with it in such a way that we're just like we use, like you said, the the physical spaces that we're in. We also use these spaces realizing they are just as real. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, they did research around is uh, is the online space real in the 90s mm. and all the conclusions are absolutely it's real there's no virtual reality it's it is the reality because our bodies respond to it mm-hmm. even spiritually people respond to online work with them um, so i think it's really a very important area for us as muslims and we're not doing a good job i mean yeah. i don't mean you or me in particular but as muslims in general if you compare us especially to evangelical mm. christians Evangelical Christians are doing a fantastic job using the online spaces. Muslims and Jews are together doing a pretty horrible job. <laughs> uh, how about for schools? I mean, you, uh, uh, you've been now four years, five years, what, five or six years in uh, a college in Connecticut, then four in a college in New Jersey, and then now in the high school. How about youth? Do you think it's uh, it becomes a danger at some point? It's still... 
uh, an uncharted territory for some youth where they, it's more negative than positive? I think that today was a very like sobering example of the need to strike a balance, you know, in that these kids, many of them saw the video. Uh, they came into school, they were sad, they were grieving, uh, they were in shock. It was like as if you saw all the stages, the, all the stages in one day, you know, that were unfolding in front of us because they were in varying levels of knowledge of what had happened. And once they start talking to each other, um, obviously it becomes clear that uh, they know more than one would like them to know. But that is the reality of our world right now. And so some of the, a lot of the conversations today, I teach the seniors and a lot of the conversations today um, fit very well in with what was happening in, in the wider world. So we tried to bring it to reality, you know, make it real for them and make it applicable. We happen to be discussing secular ethics and mm -hmm. secular humanism and um, all the limitations and critiques of it. Um, and they were right away, they were so quick to connect it to this, absolutely. yes, yeah. absolutely, to this situation and to say things like, well, if we leave law to be created by man, then what will stop a man from killing another man? We were just yeah. we were just reading uh, that article that I had shared with you, um, the cr the critique that I had shared Which with one? you last year, um, the crisis of nihilism. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, that's mm -hmm. a, good it was a really one. good one. And and so they they were really getting into it today, and you know they kept mentioning this like, okay, so you have two people and you tell them create a law, create a, a moral code, but they differ. And then you say, okay, well they differ, so that's expected. So then what's our solution? Usually leave it to the majority. But what if the majority decides on the e on what's evil? Then what do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. they were just watching them work out these things in their mind, or in, you know, as as a group as group and group work. And it was really like for me, it made it. It was almost like therapy. It was a therapy session yeah. in a way because they kept connecting it back to what had happened. Do the math, right? Yeah. So Once this is how we can connect. Like this for them. That's the that's the online, right? That's where they they are exposed to all this. But then, like, how can we kind of bring that home and sort of give meaning or understanding to or contextual, you know, contextualizing these events for yeah. them, you know? I mean, yeah, doing the math, it's start, you start off with if that's your 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 starting point, then the math tells you that there there ultimately is no no consequence if there's no afterlife. Right. So one of the things that people say is like, how could uh, if you believe in God, how could you have and God has all is all powerful. How could you believe in a God that allowed Hitler to do what he did? I say, wait, that's actually the wrong question, because <clears throat> that, our belief in that does not change the reality that it happened. So now let's take the after effect, because in our belief, we believe he's going to be taken, resurrected, taken into account, and there's eternity for him to face his punishment, right? Rather, in your belief, he put a bullet in his head and it was game over. And there was one thing that that came up, and also in the article in the discussion with the students, where they he, they brought up Nazism, and how, and then how uh, that that because there of this terrible thing that had happened or this movement that had occurred right uh, during World War II, there was a rejection of authority. You know, mm -hmm. an, and so because people couldn't distinguish between good authority and bad authority, they said get rid of all authority. Right, mm -hmm. this is like pushback against authority in general. Yeah. And this idea of connecting that to Marxism and all men are in chains and so on. So one of the students said something brilliant today. I just remember it stuck with me now when you said that. He said, but not all chains are bad. He said, all of us need limits. He's like, I need limits. Mm -hmm. I need some chains, yeah. you know? And so I thought, wow, you know, like even that acknowledgement, you know, on yeah. his part. So, yeah. yeah, you need some limits. You need some chains. And I mm -hmm. think uh, family and community provide those yeah. for people who are online mm -hmm. or in the conference scene. And these things are... More the conference more than anything else. It's a sugar rush to the ego. Yeah. And I personally uh, 
you know, the, that's my take on it. So you need uh, something to ground you. So now your bookstore is your physical space. Tell, how did you get into a bookstore? I mean, it, well, the honest truth is I wanted to open an institute to teach Arabic and Quran. Mm-hmm. But that year that I moved to Minnesota, we have in Minnesota, Sheikha Aisha was was. And she What's had... What's your name? Sheikha Aisha was was. Okay. And I didn't know her, yeah. but I knew because I just moved there. But they told me that she had just opened an institution. And I thought, I'm not going to be the juice guy. Uh, Do you yeah. know what I mean by the juice guy? Like in, in Damascus, if a juice guy opens up his juice store mm-hmm. and everybody likes the juice, immediately someone opens up a juice guy right next Competes, door yeah. to compete. And I'm not, I don't, that's not who I am. Yeah. So I thought about it for a while, and, and we were getting into the publishing world because I really feel publishing is an important thing, an important place for us to be as Muslims. Mm. And I was living in a little apartment. I thought, what am I going to do with all these books? Yeah. And so basically it started from that very sort of mundane space of, well, I'm not going to do an institute, but if I do a bookstore, mm. it can be a third space where I have halaqat. I can do classes there even if it's not going to be an actual institute. Uh, we are, I am thinking now of sort of moving into a new direction of expanding the teaching aspect of it. And I finished my, no. MashaAllah, congratulations. Ooh, that's your PhD. My dissertation. What was the topic? Uh, it was, it's, the title is Teaching from the Tent, Muslim Women's Leadership in Digital Religion, which oh, is why okay. I'm quite, Good. Uh, Good. I have a lot of opinions about Good. digital religion. But yeah, so I have my time, like I've been doing this for four years, right? So now I'm, I'm feeling ready to really focus and I'm, I'm, we have, we have a lease, so we'll be there for a while, but I am considering, not considering, I'm planning Mm -hmm. to move us into a new space that caters more to the part of what we do that is teaching, right? Right now we do do that, but we cater a lot to the teaching through the selling of books. I'm going to switch it a bit and switch it up a little bit and try to cater a bit more to the actual teaching, teaching though we part. will still be a bookstore. So uh, what kind of, is there a genre to the books? Who are who are the customers? Because bookstores, they, they're struggling in this day and age. So how are, you, how are you keeping that afloat? My brother, God bless him, when I told him I was opening a bookstore, he said, that'd be a good idea if it was 1973. <laughs> <laughs> um said thanks brother <laughs> i think i heard that the the barnes and noble that used to be on route one you know that one yeah. that shut down yeah. and became what did it become it became trader joe's mm-hmm. right? right which i'll take that trade any day of the week <laughs> but uh barnes but not in minnesota yeah not in minnesota minnesota independent bookstores are thriving oh it's a thing so yeah. i was going to say that the the starbucks inside the barnes and nobles was making more sales than the yeah, bookstores. Yeah, because people just go in there to browse. You know, they, they, go yeah. they read the book a little. I'll, I'll or go order it on Amazon. That's exactly what happens. I never I never paid in the past like three years more than $4 on a book because mm. it doesn't me- need to be new to me, right? So I get mm-hmm. it used like new, right? For three bucks. And these are great books. So tell us, how is it surviving? Like, do you have a cult following? <laughs> a cult following. Um, no, we don't have a cult following. But uh, actually, Daybreak is a project of Rabata. So we Daybreak is managed with the entire, like it's not, it's not self-sustainable by itself 100% right now. But it is, it is almost there now. Like it's almost, and I'm really proud of that because that just that we've gotten to almost that space of self-sustainability. Because yeah. I believe in social entrepreneurship. We sell books and uh, 
we choose very carefully the books we sell. And I think the really unique thing that we're doing is in Minnesota, if you go to a Barnes and Noble to look for a book about Islam, you will find two shelves of hate books. Mm-hmm. And so if you are, but Minnesota is filled with really good people who want a sense of truth about Islam. Like they mm-hmm. want to know not what the haters think say about Islam. What do Muslims say about Islam? Mm-hmm. Well, they're not going to find that in your typical Barnes and Noble. So they come to us. And we have we have what we have a social justice bookstore. So what that means is that we have books about history, we have books about women's issues, we have books about uh, racism, we have books about the environment, and we have a lot of books about spiritual health. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge section of the bookstore, and that includes food and travel because those are important for our health mm-hmm. and our learning. And then and it also includes some interfaith books. And then we have a in- gigantic for this kind of a bookstore, Muslim section. Mm. And so a lot of people, now Muslims will come there because they can really, we are careful, we carefully cull and bring books that are high quality. Mm. So they can trust what's on the shelf and purchase that and take that home. But also non-Muslims will come. And we had once had a mom coming with her 16-year-old daughter and she said, my daughter wants to become a Muslim and I didn't know where to bring her. So oh, wow. I'm bringing her to you so you can help us Give us mm. some books. I want to learn what my daughter wants to do, and I want her to read books that are healthy. So that's an example of what we're offering the community, and I'm very proud of that. And I, when I said before that I'm sort of moving into another direction, it's actually with great internal, mm. like wondering if that's the right thing to do. A lot of yeah. prayer around that. Right now we're kind of focused on pushing back on Islamophobia. Yeah. I would say that's our real focus in Daybreak, because we really, people have to come in and they meet us, they talk to us, and... They learn that Muslims do things like sell books. You know, I mean, we're like actual normal people, and uh, we have coffee and tea, but not for sale. Now you're a native of Minnesota originally, born yes, and raised. Mm-hmm. So being born and raised Muslim in Minnesota, where I've been to Minnesota once, actually been there twice. Uh, no, I think I, I think I just went once for a case. I was actually, um, what do they call those? Uh, expert witness. I was an expert witness for a school. You may have heard of it. It was a situation where Muslims were opening charter schools. Mm. And then <clears throat> another group of Muslims, their friends, were buying the property. Right. So then they would open the school, the charter school on the property and the government would pay the rent. Right. So they are the real estate owners and the school charging the rent. So this was a conflict of interest. They ended up getting so rich so fast because of the scheme, opening up a second school and there was on. And then uh, the government caught on to it. So I had been in Minnesota. It's a town where it's a state where uh, they have their the most. I think it was like the most charter schools and they're mostly connected to churches. So it's a place where they have a history of religiosity. Now, being a native, you find yourself uh, like native of Minnesota. You find yourself connecting better uh, with the non-Muslim community there. I mean, I would imagine that's better the case. Than- like better than the immigrant community. I would oh, imagine yeah. that's like not even a no, oh, that's a no brainer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's that's one of the things I'm wrestling with in my mind of, of how much of that, because, you know, everyone has limited time. So yeah. where am I going to really focus my energy? And absolutely, I can communicate well with the people of, of other faiths in Minnesota. And I actually what I would like to do, my, my sort of dream activist thing to do this is what I want to do is my activist life 
I want to bring board games to the churches and mm-hmm. have us all Muslim ladies go out and play board games with the Christian ladies because board games are break down all yeah, the ice. like yeah. let's play Scrabble you yeah. know I will be yeah. you maybe and you'll learn my English is really yeah. good <laughs> um, yeah so I mean that's the kind of stuff like the real sort of Minnesota stuff yeah. I think it's important uh, we're doing a good job about that in Minnesota and I would say, and yeah. I would say that the, the bookstore is a great idea because for the for the you probably have author signings author talks we do and then you advertise this and create a little community of with the customers and that's actually probably the best way to do to connect with them and do a type of in a sense it's a Tao in a sense that you're getting to know them and they're coming to a place where they're comfortable it's not like a church or a masjid right. so it's a completely neutral space the topic's probably neutral so the bookstore seems to me and you have coffee and tea and people are happy uh, it seems to me like one of those uh, you know perfect intersections because you're also going to be bringing up topics that are relevant to both sides yeah or, or even they'll be brought up to us and like even in the to connect back to the schools we have done cold calls to schools and said yeah. hey you here we are we're in this state and we'll come to you and we'll invite you to us and we've both gone to schools and done presentations both as part of the publishing aspect as well and then schools have come to us and I've created activities in the bookstore mm-hmm. where these young students can play with our books really is in yeah. the end what they're doing but I mean really there's there are learning activities and so in this community connection between school and bookstore teacher and i mean i was originally a teacher before mm-hmm. the nonprofit world so this uh, this this mm-hmm. intersection of different institutions has also been really valuable and uh yeah i mean i definitely want to keep it up i'm just not sure yet right now anyway right now we're in our space but yeah. i'm i'm just considering i think what i want is a place with better parking is it is it a <laughs> is it like in a downtown where where there's yes, traffic? yes we have ten thousand people that walk by us every day oh that's great it's amazing we have a beautiful space that actually the one reason it's not 100 percent standing on its own feet right now is because the rent is so doggone high <laughs> but otherwise we mashallah like yeah. you know we would be but the we have, traffic is the biggest thing I think. yes and it's yeah. be- uh, wonderful people that come in even those who have come in who maybe haven't been quite so wonderful because we have had those moments mm-hmm. they've always it's always ended up wonderful in its own i way. mean how would they what would go on who was who, who would be disruptive accusatory of uh, who we are or very few it's very very rare i don't want to highlight those moments because right. our moments have been far more much someone sent us cookies once because she wanted to send cookies to a muslim organization and we've had we had a lot of events where we say okay community who wants to come together come to the bookstore and we can grieve together unfortunately we've done that in the past Mm. well not unfortunately we've grieved together but that we've had to and today we had it was a meeting center for anyone who wanted to go to jama'ah prayer but didn't feel comfortable to go alone Mm. so we had two cars going we, i mean we didn't think we would need more than that but we had two cars that would were ready and waiting to go to the jamal nice. fair anyone who felt like they wanted to, to see to so, go with someone yeah. so there's a masjid nearby well so we're on university of minnesota campus so they could have gone to the student one but we offered to take them to masjid nur huh. which is a, uh it's a just it's a nice mosque with a real nice community and imam makram is the imam and usually his khutbahs really mm right there where you want it to be. So we nice. thought that'd be a good place to bring people. All right, so let's uh, rewind a bit. So you're from Minnesota. How did you, how, I don't know, you probably talked about this uh, a million times, but I know for our listeners may have not uh, heard about it. Uh, I certainly haven't heard the story. You're, 
born and raised in Minnesota. How do you end up studying in Syria? <laughs> well, I was born and raised in Minnesota. And earlier you said, uh, I was born and raised a Christian in Minnesota, just to be mm. clear. So I, I am a convert. And I became a Muslim when I was, I had just turned 18. Mm-hmm. January 7th, actually, 1985. Yeah. And uh, so I have had a full 33 years of Ramadan. Mashallah. So you did the lap. I did the lap. The lap. I did the lap. And my first Ramadan was in the summer. I was going to yeah. say in that. In June. <laughs> <laughs> if people don't know what that means, it means every 33 years that Ramadan comes back to the same yeah. start and, and start point as did 33 years ago. That's why when we were children, my dad used to say, wait, this is not the real Ramadan. When you're in your 30s, you'll see the real Ramadan. In in my high school days, it was winter time. So it was literally Mm -hmm. long nights. Mm -hmm. And winter break, Ramadan is the best. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Especially if you're a teenager, I'm sure. (laughs) And so I became Muslim in January 1985. And that was a freshman in college. And uh, I mean, I guess I don't know. You asked specifically about Syria, so I'm I'm kind of answering that piece. I became Muslim in 1985 in Minnesota. So I don't know how much about wow. I have to say about that. I mean, that, there probably weren't tough. even many immigrants, if any. Yeah, there were a few. There were some, but not many. I went to a university that was that prided itself on its international student community. Okay. So we had maybe 12 Muslims on campus, which was a lot. I bet you they were from Saudi, too. No, they were from they all different countries. Yet. Actually, you know what? This was the 80s. So we had a lot of Malaysians. Oh, okay. And we did it. We had about 12 Arabs. And then we had probably about maybe 15 Malaysians, mm. because Malaysia at that time was really sending people overseas. Oh. And the Malaysians were such a blessing <laughs> in my life. But anyway, so I became a Muslim in January. I struggled with the community and how I felt about... I, I became a Muslim very quickly. I became a Muslim because of a spiritual experience, not because of learning, even though I was very much a brain-type person. Mm. And so, and it was pre-Google, very hard to, for people to sort of imagine that. And so it was quite difficult to do any learning. I did move in with Malaysians and that was wonderful, but I really was struggling with the tone of books written in English, Mm. especially regarding women and women's issues, uh, especially for me at that time. Mm. It was really, really hard. Some other day we can do a whole podcast and I can depress you. Actually, yeah, let, that's the meat and potatoes. Let's go straight into that since okay. we have our event is coming up soon. But we do still have some time. And that's really the meat and potatoes. So if you want to get straight into those, uh, we could do that. About how hard it was? Yeah, and, all, and, all, and your opinions and what you, what you found, what your opinions are, and your, your responses to anyone who's... So uh, when I became Muslim in that January, I immediately, like, I was... It was so hard. I had um, I would get books and people would give me books or I would buy books, really excited to read something about this religion that I had entered into. And it would say things in these books like the value of a woman is in in being a wife. Mm-hmm. Now, as a, as a Christian, I had decided I wasn't going to get married. And part, part of that was just because I, I don't want to waste time on that. But so... But I was very conscious of this sort of problematic issue of deciding that a woman's value is in her social status, mm-hmm. whether it's who her father is or who her husband is or what have you. And this is the 80s. And so the 80s, and I was a member of the National Organization of Women, which is a whole nother deal. So mm-hmm. reading books like this was offensive to me. And I became a Muslim because of the verse, in al-Muslimin al-Muslimat al-Mu'minat. I opened the Quran to that verse, and I was like, okay, 
I guess this is a religion that has equity between men and women. So, and I did, I prayed about it and that's, I, that's the spiritual experience was the praying about it, but it was that verse that made me believe at that very early age that Islam had within it a very healthy attitude towards men and women. But the second I sort of walked into community, I was, it was a barrage of all sorts of things that felt really wrong to me. And a lot of them are now gone, you mm. know, uh, from, architecture that told me that I didn't belong in the mosque to uh, I mean to books that told me I was my I couldn't speak you know mm-hmm. all sorts of different things and so I was really frustrated I I I didn't really know what to do I had a crisis of faith and every crisis of faith I would go back to that spiritual experience so that was really a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I had that to rely on Mm -hmm. but at the same time I didn't know where to go to learn and I met a woman in California I was actually given her number I would call her on the phone and ask her all these questions I mean some things that now seem ridiculous perhaps but questions like why can't I pray if I'm menstruating that doesn't make any sense you know stuff like Mm -hmm. that where there weren't books out there that would say anything about that in any sense of an Islamic sense of that Mm -hmm. instead they were actually quite Christian and colonialist yeah. making you feel like oh because you're I don't know it's almost Jewish in a way and this impure. Con- impure yeah you yourself are an impure human being you know you have nothing to do with it yes exactly yeah. so really a lot of messaging that was hard and at one point I also in the 80s this is pre-90s but in the 80s there were certain messages that were acceptable and certain messages that were not and at one point I started to grow alhamdulillah and learn more about the spiritual aspects of islam and i i was actually taken i was invited somewhere and they brought me into a house it was an intervention to tell me that i kafert anti kafert oh for doing what for uh for i was actually seeking a teacher at the time like i was interested in the idea of having a teacher of learning from a teacher not just in a circle yeah and I was interested in spirituality, and I certainly can't claim that I had achieved any spirituality, but I was interested in it and talking about it. And my talking about it uh, set me up for this uh, crazy intervention uh, where I was just like, wow. Yeah. So that threw me into a place where I was like, I got to do something. Now, well, we, were, I, we were really like uh, Mesakin at that time. Yeah. I mean, the English books that you were mentioning like that were available for us to look at with regards to the issues related to women. I remember, I mean, even after I started, when I first put on hijab, somebody gave me the Saudi, the book, the Fatawa on women. Yeah. And I remember that <laughs> yeah. day very well. I was like sitting on my bed and I Crying. started looking through it. I, was, I hadn't even opened it yet, right? But I opened it to some random page and it was just like you just described. And I, I had this moment where I had like a conversation with myself and, and I prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as a teenager, you know, just you're in that moment where you're sort of, you could go, the, the, the road can divide. Mm. You know? And I remember saying, this just can't be right. This just can't be it. There's no way I can reconcile this that I see here mm-hmm. with how beautiful I know my Lord is, my creator is, and how merciful he is. I can't bring these two things together. And I remember just putting it aside and I remember not looking at it wow. ever again. And it was one of those like things where even people asked me, and for a long time people would ask me for resources or whatever, and I would say, I have nothing for you. Yeah. I don't have anything to give you. Right. Just whatever I've been taught, you know, I'll share, share it with them. But 
books wise no but alhamdulillah that you were able to do that because for so many people we've lost so Absolutely. many women mm. or, I agree or even women that are sort of going through the motions but I they've agree. just been lost because what they've read or what they've heard has been so offensive and to think that or even just what they've seen you know I mean we also have an issue even today where I mean unfortunately experiences it's, it's well yeah. I was going to talk about something that I mm. haven't really talked about before mm. which is I've been noticing that there's sort of a comfort level of making crass jokes about women mm. amongst even leadership mm. and this I don't think anyone really understands how hurtful that is as far as when you are struggling to hold space in your religious environment. And I really believe that the human being is, well, we, we believe that the human being is created to know to, this is the most important part of us. So if our religious community is hurting us, we can't have balance and we can't be healthy. And I daily, daily, I am talking to women about things they're experiencing in society, whether it's in their mosque, whether it's uh, a joke that was made where they were the butt of the joke, whether it's just really nasty words that are said to them and then told that this is my right to say these words to you by the Quran. So this is the kind of really skewed thinking that we have. And uh, it was, so for me back then, it was absolutely, absolutely, I didn't know what to do with myself. And every time we think we're, over, we're out of that, mm-hmm. we're back in it. Like I was just dealing with something similar to what you're talking about. And I thought to myself, this is like so 1990s, like, you know, <laughs> Arab immigrant community that I know very well. And those kinds of things where, and I, I, I mentioned this incident actually to my husband. What we happened? At, what was it? The door banging thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So so tell us that. Tell us the story. There, and the only reason I'm asking for examples is that uh, there might be people who they're they're trying to understand. Yeah. They need a concrete example. Yeah. So give us a tell us what we happened. We were at, at a, a gathering at a you know social gathering at somebody's house, and uh, we were sitting all the women together upstairs, and the men were downstairs in the basement. Um, the, one of the men wanted to come upstairs but found, I guess, when he got to the top of the stairs that the women were sitting. So rather than I- introduce himself or say something like, assalamu alaikum, you know, can I pass? He started banging on the door, on the, on the um, what do you call that? Edge thing? of the door. The edge of the door. <clears throat> and it was so, so loud, it's like scared me, you know, it scared all of us, you know, because we just, and then he started yelling about how we need to move because he needs to get through. And I thought to myself, subhanAllah, like this is somebody, by the way, I've known since, like I've known him since the 90s. And that was something that I did see that kind of behavior from him before. But I thought to myself, subhanAllah, like after all this time, and we're still like, we've, you know, we think, we, we believe that, you know, we have improved, right, many aspects of our communities, but yet that's still that adab, you know, that's, or the lack of, you know, that's coming. And I honestly, I just could not, I couldn't handle it. I literally turned my face away and I could not even say salam alaikum or anything, you know, because of how turned off I was. And really, the pr- my problem with that has always been that type of thing, or even the situation where you are a Muslim woman alone somewhere, and, and now I think this has changed, perhaps, for many people, but or if you're in a mosque or somewhere, you know, you, people won't give you salam or, you know. But if they're in the coffee shop, well, then we know how to deal with women. We know how to be polite 
and professional, I like that word, with women, but suddenly when we're in our own spaces. You know, but God bless the immigrant community too. I don't want to throw them under any bus. Not at all, but I mean, what my thought is just always, what I was just thinking when I was going home is that I know this is an individual who works, who who, who functions in society, Mm -hmm. and I was just imagining to myself, okay, if he has a female coworker at work, if he wants her to get out of his way, is he going to bang on the door while he's walking by and she's supposed to get up and run? I mean, I'm just saying like, you know, the, the believers are supposed to even have like a, there's a, there's a darajah, like there's a, there's a respect just yeah. by virtue of the fact you say, la ilaha illa Muhammadun Rasulullah, and then yet you're banging on yeah. doors and telling them, like almost as if you're moving cattle, you know, moving. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I don't even think that it's just immigrants because it's thought, it's ideas. Yeah. And right. a lot of the, a lot of my friends, especially the, uh, the, uh, the Dara Ulum trained friends of mine, right, they actually totally disagree with my views on these things. And you saw just on Twitter today when a brother said, um, everyone's calling for a barrier. You're going to have uh, Ansa Tamara Gray speak. That means there's not going to be a divider. And I said, and what is, what's your response? They're saying that you're like, you're all selling out, etc. I said, uh, I have no problem. Bring me one yeah. textual piece of evidence where the prophet, peace be upon him, forbade men and women to be in a room without a divider. I'll put the divider up within the hour. Give me one textual piece of evidence. So it's not just uh, immigrants. And I don't mean, I don't mind someone wants to put a divider. If the whole group is doing that, if the whole country is operating like that, that's their choice. That's what they find good. That's what the men and women find good. That that's, that's good for them. And, and I'm not going to fight them for that. But at the same time, if they're taking that teaching and then turning around, try to make someone feel guilty for not having it, I'm going to turn around and say, show me the evidence. You know, I want to push back on you a little bit about, yeah. I, I, I hear you about if everybody wants to do it, we should listen to the community. And I, I, I feel like probably that is the right way to feel. But after 30 years, I just want to say that if the Prophet ﷺ didn't do it, why do we think we know better? And I don't think we always know why things are done in one way or the other. So the Prophet ﷺ did not have a barrier in the mosque. And I mean, I have been kicked out of mosques. There's a mosque I went to in Virginia I wanted to pray Fajr. I actually, alhamdulillah, my knee's much better, but I, I have periods in my life where I have a bad knee. I crawled up those stairs to go to the place to pray upstairs. It was extreme difficulty the day before. And there was garbage all over in the quote-unquote woman's section, which tells me I don't want you. Like, you as a woman, you're not valuable to me here in this space. The next day, I just couldn't. And there were young women who, because I was there, I was a guest, actually, believe it or not, so there were young women that were there because I was there and we were supposed to have this little morning event and I couldn't. So I said, I'm going to pray in the main prayer hall. Now, my heart, I just felt like, I don't know if they're going to let me. So I'm, let me just pray before the jama'ah because I don't want to miss Fajr. So I prayed on my own and then I thought, oh, I'm going to pray again if they let me. They kicked me out. It was freezing cold. I had to stand outside in the freezing cold weather. I could not, I couldn't climb up the stairs because of my knee and I couldn't, and it was just, I mean, that's one incident. So what I'm saying here is that the, there's an architectural message to women. And there's also like, I talked to, in my research, I talked to a number of different women who are either on their way to becoming uh, religious scholars, mm-hmm. or they've, they're already, let's say, at the cusp. And I also, who are already, but the ones I'm thinking about right now were either news just finished with their sort of student life and beginning to teach. And a lot of them talked about uh, this lack of access, that when they're behind a wall and listening, 
they don't feel connected to lecture. So you go to university and you're listening and you know how to ask a question with adab and without any issue. But all of a sudden you're going to learn about Islamic sciences, which are really much more important if, in the whole of it to understand correctly and be able to ask questions. And they're not able to. And then the other piece is that every I have yet to see a woman's quote unquote space that doesn't make me personally, and I'll just use my own life experience here, feel like we don't really want you here. And even the ones that are behind two-way glass, I'm like, really? You know, it's just so weird. And it's just, we have to stop being weird, you know? And, and what I, one of the things that I felt that's really important is that you have to look at the lowest common denominator, which is if a non-Muslim family walks into the door, oh, thank right? You. Dawah is the most important thing. Yeah. Right, it's more important to bring one person into Islam than to make a thousand Muslims happy with an opinion which they prefer over another opinion. I mean, so that's the lowest common denominator, and that's why I think the masajid should have uh, they should be as seamless as possible, and our fiqh should try to be as seamless as possible, right? Provided that it's within boundaries with mm-hmm. the greater culture, so that there's a seamless entrance and exit, right? Uh, when non Muslims come in. They don't feel totally, you know, weird. They might be polite. Okay, you're polite, nice message and everything. But the physical movement in the room was too awkward for me to have to repeat. And I can never imagine myself doing this permanently. Often. uh, I'm I'm sorry, but I just want to really care. I'm thanking. I want to thank you for saying that. Because why the thing I always tell people is my judgment, if my, my, not that my judgment is necessarily important, but my judgment of a mosque or my, yeah, my judgment of a mosque is, can I bring my mother there? Mm. And how much does it break my heart that nine times out of ten, my answer is no. Yeah. Sorry, Tammy, go ahead. You wanted to say? Uh, I, sorry, I just here, come over, bring around here. Uh, That's good. Yeah. All right, so I'm joined here by uh, Raza. If anyone have heard the Quran, the first few juz on the Safina Saadi's translation of the Quran, of the Abd al-Halim translation that's on SoundCloud and YouTube. Uh, Raza's the voice of that. So, And people, by the way, missed you. I mean, Moeen did a great job when you had to go to medical school, but people did comment that they liked your voice. Assalamu right. uh, alaikum, everybody. Um, so I just wanted to ask, actually, I, I had heard of incidents in the Sirah Hadith literature where the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu would, after a prayer or in between or something like that he would actually approach so he would actually go behind the men and he would actually approach the the women's section and he would ask is there anything i can do for you addressing them as a group and you know like hearing about i, I just wanted to ask you if that was a real thing if, if you could confirm that and if that's true like how our mosques with these like two-way mirrors and stuff like that how exactly is that following a prophetic model it's kind of like cutting it very short i think so i i really think that the way you asked your question is interesting because at the time of the prophet if you really really look at the literature around what was happening in the mosque there wasn't a men's section and a woman's section there was the prayer hall and when it was time to pray men would line up children behind the men and then the women would line up it's such a beautiful babysitting arrangement (laughs) And, and they would, it was a natural lineup. What we have today is actually women who, believe it or not, they'll feel nervous about going up to the quote-unquote, even if it's an open space, going up to the quote-unquote men's section to pick up a mushaf. 
that they need. Like, let's say they don't have the one that they want here because they're like, oh, can I can I walk in this space or not? And so that messaging in and of itself or that question of in and of itself, talking about the process that I'm going to the women's section, we can't really, we, we have to sort of rethink how the mosque was. And certainly the Prophet not only spoke to women, but taught them and we know that his wife Zainab, anha, that he once came into the mosque and found the rope hanging. And he asked, I love that he asked, what's this rope for? Because, I don't know, I just really love that. It teaches us so much about her worship and uh, how she had the initiative on her own to decide, okay, I'm struggling standing up in my prayer, mashallah, how long she was praying. So I'm not going to, you know, go around and ask anybody about this. Not even my husband, who is the prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I'm just going to tie a rope in the rafters so that I can pray here. And when I say rafters, the, not the entire thing had uh, uh, a ceiling. So we're talking just about a particular part of it. And when the Prophet saw it, he, well, what's this? Oh, this is the rope. This is your wife's rope, Ya Rasulullah. When she tires, she sits. And there are two different interpretations of this hadith. And one of them is that, uh, sorry, the Prophet then said when, uh, okay, well, if she tell her, again, tell her, right? So this is for everyone because he wants us all to know that if you're so exhausted, there's one of, the interpretation is one of two. He said she should sit. So some of the, uh, ex those who explain hadith say that that means that if you're so tired that you can't stand any longer, you should take a break. Hmm. Others say, no, no, continue the prayer, but sitting. Yeah, subhanallah, we learn so much from that. But if we can stand back from the actual hadith and recognize the Prophet did not say, what? What's she doing in here when I'm not here? Why did she even come here? Oh, it was in the masjid, it was not in, in the masjid. And this was a rope like she would sit yeah. on it? No, no, no. She would hang she would on hang to on it. it. Okay. She would like it was, you know, so if she's going to fall or whatever okay, so from exhaustion. Okay, so it was like a swing or something. Yeah. No, no, so sorry. I, I did, maybe yeah. I didn't describe it well. She would grab onto it. And, and lean like, on it. And lean on it for uh, support. Yeah, for support. Yeah. Which, there's so much to say about that. Just as, but. Also, didn't the wives, uh, didn't one of the wives of the Prophet on them also pitch a tent during the... Uh, Etika. Right. Is, isn't that, is that not true as well? Yeah, I mean, there's, well, there are so many different kinds of stories that you can talk about that. The mosque was a living community space. It was definitely sacred for prayer. The mimbar itself was built because a woman, of a woman, who's, who when, they, when the Muslims became many, she said, Ya Rasulullah, we can barely see you. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to have my carpenter build you a mimbar. And that's when he walked away from the tree, the tree that cried. So, uh, because she built the mimbar. And even though the tree cried, which is, you know, amazing by itself, he didn't, he, he remained with mimbar because it was more important that he be seen. La ilaha illallah. As a, we, we complain a lot in the mosques that women don't pay attention. They're talking to each other. Well, of course, if you can't see the speaker, how are you feeling like you're a part of the conversation? And I just also have to throw in a fuqah thing because it drives me nuts, which is, in the world of digital religion, there's a whole question of ritual. And a lot of research is being done around what <coughs> ritual is being done online, okay? And I won't go into that, but I, it just makes me think so much because how many women are praying prayers at home, fuqhan la yajuz, in fuqh they're not possible, behind a screen because for years and years they have prayed behind a screen in the mosque 
So they figure, well, what's the big deal? I can pray behind a screen at home with the imam at the at Mecca or the imam yeah. wherever they're watching. So on they're TV. following on TV. Yeah, they're following on TV because mm-hmm. they've been following behind screens and mosques for so many years, and there there have never been classes that talk about yeah. that. And they're also cut off from yes. the image of correct prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, like I oh, mean, yes. when we were younger and we prayed in masjid, that's similar to what you described. But like, we never saw anything and so were it not for one Quran teacher that I had that was constantly correcting us as, as kids as youth and even into our teen years like I was with her all the way up till the time I went to college I don't think I would have who was going to correct my prayer yeah, and this is really mistake. important because we sometimes think oh we'll just give a fuqah class mm-hmm. but as part of my research yeah. for my dissertation I observed a prayer workshop given by a wonderful woman teacher and it was a wonderful workshop like i observed the workshop it was good it was solid it was whatever it was over and literally the women got up from the workshop and prayed in whatever old way they used to pray without any change i saw with my eyes incorrect prayer and so if you're you have to be able to see see. and it has to be over time because if you're unable you forget there are too many things to remember over time with suhba and that's why uh scholarship is very important so because yes. there's more learned and more develop more develops with suhba of a scholar and the ability to have a casual conversation mm-hmm. than as much as it happens in class right oh, or yes. even more than in class some of my yeah. best i would say upbringing of some of my students <clears throat> has been when i've taken them shopping mm. subhanallah yeah, there's so many things that happen that yes. would never happen in a classroom. Right. And th- and that's why the chief relationship of the Sahaba was companionship, not telamid. So their title is companions, not students, not uh, disciples even, not mur- not murids, not telamid, not um, hawariyin, but just Sahaba. Just keep company. And, the, and, and then hearts, hearts align and customs align and knowledge. And lives change. And lives change. And worlds change. Yeah. And uh, subhanAllah, like uh, one of the other things, I guess it was a bit of made it made me a little bit of an exception uh, from some of the other families we knew is that um, growing up, my my father used to take me to most of the social programs or Islamic programs alone. Right. Because my parents weren't together. And so he felt a kind of responsibility for me and he couldn't leave me with the mm. women. Where mm. was I going to go? I, I, you know, it wasn't like that. So, so I tend to <laughs> yes, I tended to be in gatherings of men a lot, you know, when I was a kid. Mm. And uh, that was a, a blessing in a way yes. because it made me serious about this stuff to the point where now I cannot tolerate I tolerate very little chatting whenever there's any kind of thing going Mm. on like I need to be able to concentrate and part of the this is like all these kinds of things you've been talking about coming together part of what frustrates me is because women are cut off from the the view of or men can't see them I think there's less of a feeling of accountability that like there's more chatting because well nobody's looking and they probably if we were all together in one space they would feel less uh, comfortable with that of idea of just socializing about whatever they're socializing about. I mean, would but they I do it in a said, class at the university? No. no. And I always said to my father first and my husband now, I say, I always want to sit with the men, you know, because mm-hmm. I just want to listen. I, I have a hard time sitting in a space and wasting a chance. Uh, to me, I'm wasting the chance. It's right. always been my feeling. Yeah. And it's all about training and culture, like you just said. Yeah. And that's why, back to the, the point of the mosque, the Prophet did it right. Mm-hmm. Why are we thinking that he didn't do it right? He did it right. And we, even if it's, I think really the early, my feeling is that the early, the madahib, the imams of the early madahib, you know, subhanAllah, they struggled with this so much because women across geographical and historical borders have led private lives. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that they could be, quote unquote, sort of public in the mosque was really shocking for them. 
And they created all these fatawi around that to make it feel like it would make sense, not being able to get away from the hadith, uh, so they like played with it in different ways. But today, women live public lives, and we have to note we just we just it's not do. changing. It's yeah. not going to change anything. That's not going to change. Yeah. We live public lives, and so to live a public life and then come to the place of nutrition and spiritual rest, and not and and be sort of put into this sort of strange situation where you're not mm-hmm. participating. Mm-hmm is i would say not just not okay it's damaging Absolutely. and and i would say that some people who are putting up a defense of the dean on many fronts like against uh you know, certain trends in society and they're doing a valiant effort but Absolutely. you can't lose the big picture right there are certain many poisons that come on the subject of gender right but on this subject, we're talking about people who want to be in a masjid. La ilaha illallah. Exactly. She's not saying, I want to go hang out with the men in the concert. No. I want to go uh, uh, play soccer with them with shorts. They're saying, I want to attend the class. Yes. Because the uh, other women are chit-chatting and talking. Yes. Like, we have to look at the big picture. And if you're going to lose your yes. sense of balance on this, the, you're going to die on a hill. You're going to regret it. This is not the hill to die on, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that, it makes no sense. Because we're all working. Right. Everyone's living. Most people are living public lives. Uh, if you're not, that's a unique case. Who's 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 educating your people when you're at, or, you know, when you're not there. Right. Who's being an example. So who's going to be your gynecologist? You would rather someone who you would rather man be your gynecologist or you rather be a like someone's got to be a doctor. Right. Who's going to teach your fiqh? We know that what happened recently um, in Muslim communities and it happened in England and they took care of it in England of the imam who was going after the women right his yeah. students right so yeah. you would rather when your daughter is 17 not to have a teacher right and how's she going to learn it's like the, the loop's got to start somewhere yeah, there's yeah. going to be a point where a woman studies and learns from her teacher from yeah. a man yeah. doesn't mean that they have to be alone right it doesn't mean that there's something inappropriate going on it doesn't mean that she's like licentious because she wants to listen right so these extremes my message to those brothers is that there's one thing to be tough and staunch on certain matters of aqidah that are affecting us that are coming straight to akhirah straight to the heart and straight to the akhirah but this one you gotta have a little bit of balance and i think maybe my 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 mother tammy's mother uh they both well, Actually, I should say, my mother, semicolon, Tammy's mother, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, both were professionals. That's what I grew up on. I grew up on uh, going to the mall with my mom. Many, everyone's saying salam to her because they know her as their, her pediatrician. Tammy's mom worked in uh, Brissamaya Squibb, right, uh, and had a prestigious position. So that's what we're accustomed to. That's what we're used to. And so that's what colors, for me, that's what colors it. And I never came upon a faqih. That said the opposite. Never t- came upon a faqih told my mom, he's, you've got to stay home. And we had some conservative fuqaha. Beard to the chest, conservative. right? Mm-hmm. Never heard it. In uh, f- uh, fiqh, and we're going to stop for maghrib right now, but in uh, when we studied fiqh, we studied under uh, with the Mauritanians and Muravit al-Hajj, and their tent, his wife is the one who takes care of all the students. right? She goes around asking them, what crops should I grow? Do you want me to grow carrots? What, what's your name? What's your family background? She talked to them. So those stories uh, went on, um, which colored our perception of things, right? And so that's what I think is balanced, right? And until, again, until someone shows us explicit textual evidence, 
this is how it's going to roll. And it's rolled like that in Malaysia, Turkey, all of North Africa right. for centuries. It's not a modern thing for centuries. So my message is to have this balance. Now, uh, the adhan just went off and Sheikh Nasser, mashallah, does a very quick adhan. <laughs> so we'll stop here. Um, and then uh, any closing remarks? Well, thank you for having me on. And these are important topics. And it's I, I really believe that talking about them makes change mm-hmm. and helps people. Just hearing us talk about them does make a difference in people's lives. So good job. Alhamdulillah. Jazakumullah khair. And we hope someday uh, check out your bookstore. Yes. Yes. No, yes thank you. Yeah, you have to come. Inshallah. All right. And thank you, Tammy, for coming on the first of course, podcast. No, thank you for having me. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا الحق وتواصوا الصبر والسلام عليكم